following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Today we'll be in Psalm 118, so if you can turn over there, uh, that's where we will be today. Um, but before we go into Psalm 118, I wanted to just kind of give a brief overview and kind of walk through generally this text so that when we read it, um, hopefully your ears will be peaked to, um, uh, to kind of take in what, um, in context, kind of how this psalm is laid out. So uh, first of all, uh, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 are the Hillel songs. They were used in, in worship. And so used in worship, uh, like in, uh, in great events, um, Israel, you know, holidays, um, those types of things. But um, they were also used in preparation for the Passover. And so it was not uncommon for, for, um, for Jews to sing through these songs in preparation uh, for the Passover and actually anticipating um, a Messiah, the one who would come. And uh, as a note as well, um, I really, um, after reading through the psalm numerous times, and uh, I can say that I would, um, there's a uh, tradition that Jesus actually may have even sung this song, um, sung these songs during the last summer, when it, last supper, as it says, that they sang a, a song and went out, or sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Um, there is a very good chance that he actually sang the song. And so thinking through the passion, uh, you know, those events leading up to the cross, as you read through the psalm, it's going to be incredibly valuable to you. Um, also, um, if you get a chance after we're done here, I would encourage you to read through Psalm 118 uh, with the Gospels, the ends of the Gospels opened up. Um, because what you'll find is a tremendous amount of connection to this song in, in how the disciples, potentially even hearing that sung prior to these events, all these things are coming to mind as now they reflect on this Savior that they have who is fulfilling all of these things. So uh, Psalm 118 it starts out um, with this uh, repetitious um, praise to God for his steadfast love. So it starts out, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then what you'll see in the psalm is this back and forth between, um, between think of like someone leading in praise, okay? And they would say, I would say to all of you, let all Israel say, and then you would reply, his steadfast love endures forever. Then maybe I go over and I look over to the priests and I say, priests, you know, let the house of Aaron say, and they would reply, let his steadfast love endure forever. And then I would say to everyone, let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. So you have this little bit of back and forth going. And then this next portion then would depict a king. And this is where... Um, as we work through this text, we need to be thinking this, uh, even though chances are this was not, it, it was not David writing this psalm, whoever is writing this is really, I think it fits most clearly. And I think even for our understanding of the text, it's very beneficial to think of it this way. Think of it as if he were uh, recounting the things for David or on, on the part of David as David's, um, a lot of the things that we see through these things that... Um, 
that this uh, king is talking about that God has done for him fall very closely in line with David's life. Um, but the idea is, is one where a king then would be um, pronouncing the fact that of the greatness and the things that God has done, rescuing him from distress, uh, his claim that God is on his side. He doesn't need to fear what's around him because, because God is going to um, be his salvation, be his rescue. He says it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. And so you have this, this accounting, recounting of what God has done um, in the face of the nations, in the face of, um, of uh, the rejection that has come to this king. He is then now um, recounting those things and praising the Lord for them. Throughout this psalm, we also have these, uh, we have these pauses to praise and worship through these to where it's almost like everything stops and someone just magnifies the Lord. They praise him for, for how good he is and what he has done in their salvation. And then in verse 19 and 20, we, say, we see a pro- procession to the worship at the temple. So the, in 19, the king shouts to the gatekeeper to open up the gates. In 20, we have the, the response. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Then 21, we have this pause to praise for God's great salvation which I find interesting as well. You know, I think reading the, um, the Psalms, sometimes when we have these, um, we have psalmists that will, will talk about um, by my righteousness I do X, Y, Z, or, you know, and these type of things. But um, I find in this passage especially, it's a, it's a recounting of the fact that I am doing these still because God is the one that is doing them. Uh, on my behalf. He is the one that is saving me, not my works, not the things that I have done. My works then are a reflection of who he is and what he has done. Verse 22, there's an explanation of the, the phrase, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is possibly an expression used to describe the rejection of the king, but is now being restored to his place, which proves and magnifies his rightful God-given position. So think of this, um, this king. When we get to that uh, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now we quickly jump to our New Testament, uh, right? And we think of Jesus, which we will do because I think that's the direction we need to head. However, think of it as well as, um, I think it's helpful to think of it as David um, was forced out of his kingdom, okay? He struggled, uh, he was forced out, he was rejected, as, as the one that would lead God's people. And yet, what do we see? We see God's, even though people around him were rejecting him, we see him established and his kingdom established. Okay? And those are the thoughts that um, initially uh, should come out as, as, uh, if we're trying to read this as someone first would have read it. Upon seeing that, there's this response that this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in his eyes. We have this um, response and, and praise. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then we have this pause to praise again. Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, grant us success. There's another announcement of, uh, of blessing here. Blessed is the one who's, uh, who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And then that continues on. As we close out then in the last few verses here, let's just read 
29, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. So we see that re- full recap. So it's, this whole psalm is encapsulated in the idea that we want to leave this psalm finding out what are we praising Jesus or praising God for, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so through this psalm, we're going to f- see what the pinnacle of that praise is, and we will, we will look to that. So um, what we're going to want to do at this point, I would like us to um, read the psalm, then we'll pray, then we'll get into it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do to me. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous may enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. And he made light, his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're coming to you today as people who recognize that your steadfast love endures forever. We recognize it not because of the incredible insight that we have in and of ourselves, but we recognize it because you have given us your word. You have, in your spirit, has convicted us of sin. You have caused us, uh, our eyes to be opened to your word and to show and to see us that you alone are worthy of praise. You are worthy of praise because you are good, because your steadfast love endures forever. We exalt you today and magnify your holy name. Your steadfast love endures forever. We think of ourselves and realize that you have made us a kingdom of priests. And so out of the house of Aaron, your steadfast love endures forever. We are excited to worship your name today and praise your holy name because even in our distress, 
in our weakness. Uh, we cry out to you, and your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, sometimes it's very difficult for us to believe these things. Sometimes the difficulties of life, they well up around us. They cause us to focus on them. We lose sight of your faithfulness in these things. I pray today that you would, um, that the light of your uh, goodness and grace would shine upon us. The Lord is God and he made his light to shine upon us. I pray that we would, um, in that light, that we would live in that light. Live in the light knowing that you are good and that you are faithful and that you have given to us a good Savior who has fulfilled the, um, the requirements uh, of all that you have placed before him. He is, he is the uh, fulfiller of everything in the law. He is the one to whom the Psalms look for and seek for, and he fulfills all their demands. So we're praising you today because you are good. I pray that uh, we, would, um, we would stay focused on your text this morning, that you would guard our minds and our hearts from um, sinful or foolish thoughts, even good distracting thoughts. I pray that, we would, that you would root them out and that we'd be able to focus. I pray that my words would be clear and not muddled. I pray that you would um, bring clarity to my mind for both uh, understanding this text, proclaiming this text, and seeking uh, to apply this text today. In your name I pray, amen. So let's, uh, let's go to verse 22 and focus in on that. Um, verse 22, um, the reason I'd like to focus on it is just um, due to the fact that Jesus himself focuses on it as well. And so as we look and find direct uh, connection between the New Testament and the Old, this is one that uh, both Jesus um, Jesus brings about in Matthew 21, 42, speaking of himself. And then also one that the New Testament writers, Ephesians 2, 20, um, they chime in as well, referencing what Jesus has said about himself. So I'd like to start there. And I think as we see him uh, describe himself in these terms, we then can go off of that verse and see also how he is the fulfillment of these things. So let's turn to... Uh, 22 there, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So this verse, uh, as I mentioned, and you can turn over to Matthew uh, chapter 21. Um, we have in Matthew 21, we have, uh, we have quite a few <laughs> things in this passage that speak directly back um, and reflect back on what God has, has written um, through the psalmist in uh, Psalm 118. So in Matthew 21, we have the triumphal entry. We have the cleansing of the temple. Um, and then also we have um, this passage of the stone that the builders rejected have become the cornerstone. So if you have an opportunity even after this, because we won't touch on all of it, if you have an opportunity to read through this and then read both of these at the same time. And you'll be surprised at the correlation that I think Matthew is drawing from. And remember, Matthew, is, he is showing Jesus the king of Israel. Okay, that's his, that's his intention in this book as well, is to show Jesus as this, this long-awaited king. We have, uh, in verse uh, 33, Matthew 21, 33, 
We have him saying, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants looked at his servants and beat one and killed the other and stoned the other. Again, he sent his other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent the son to them, saying, we will respect, he, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. Then they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches out into miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So when we look back at this passage in light of what Jesus says is about himself, both there is a piece of sadness in the fact that um, we have people, a people who long awaited the coming of Christ. They long awaited the Messiah's return. They long awaited for him to come and establish his kingdom on earth, but yet they missed it. And so this then... Um, there, no, none of them would have thought themselves to be the ones who <laughs> would be fulfilling this passage because like we mentioned before, this is a well-known passage. This would have been something that they would have spoken on, talked about, sang to one another. This is a well-known passage and to think that they would be, fall into this category as the builders who would reject this coming cornerstone. Obviously, they would not think that. They just didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And really, isn't that the crux of the gospel? I mean, everybody's looking to be rescued. Everybody's looking to have, um, to be saved to some regard, either by their own merit or by um, what they choose to believe. But yet, it's in the rejection of Jesus Christ that comes that point where rather than, than standing firmly on the rock, Jesus then rather than that temple of God resting on him, some choose to reject him, and then they are, they are crushed by him. If it falls on anyone, it will crush them. And so I see that in here in this verse is both a sadness in the fact that he was rejected by those who were longing for him because they did not see him for who he was. They had misunderstood um, what this coming king would do and be. And I really think that um, Jordan and I were talking about this a little bit in between, but when we read through this text, um, I am more and more inclined, as some of the older commentators do, is to see this entire text as, you know, think of Jesus singing the song at the, you know, leaving for the Mount of Olives, and then seeing himself as, out of my distress I called on the Lord, kneeling in the garden, and the Lord answered me and set me free, promising that hope of victory. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I look at triumph on those who hate me. 
It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Remember when he says he didn't put his confidence in the crowds because he knew all men? It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. How good was if he would have placed his trust in Pilate? Even though Pilate didn't believe he was guilty, he did nothing. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. He's standing in victory over the nations around him. They surrounded me like bees. There was a fury in his crucifixion, but it didn't last long. That fury of God's wrath upon him was was done. I was pushed hard, or you have pushed me hard, speaking to the enemy, so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength, and by song, he has become my salvation. Skipping down to 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. I think speaking of resurrection. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. All of those, to me, resonate in my heart. Can I prove it from the text? Maybe not, but they're resonating with me deeply as I I think through, as he goes out, um, succumbing to soon do what we see in verse 19 and following here, as we see um, him claiming that entrance to the temple as well. And we'll get to that in a minute here. But sorry, segue for me, but what a, what a blessing um, that God's word is. And when we see um, what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ, and then we reflect back and see how the Old Testament projected Christ. Um, something also that um, is well, when, when, uh, when he says that you have um, saved me so that I might recount the deeds of of the Lord. What do we see Jesus doing upon his death and his resurrection? He's meeting with his disciples. He's recounting the deeds of the Lord. He's recounting that steadfast love of God, the faithfulness of God to his people. Um, And he does it, if you remember in Luke, um, he does it by, uh, by telling them how he was displayed in Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms. So he and then is going back to them and showing him from the text of the Old Testament that he is who he says he was. So that's verse 22 as we see this stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We see as those looking back to it, we see Jesus both claiming it for himself and then we see that the New Testament authors as well claiming it saying this is the one who was promised, this is the cornerstone. But we missed it in our blindness, and in our rejection of, of, of God for who he was, we missed it. Verse 23 is exciting because this is the song of those who get it. This is the song of those who understand what he is saying here. Referring back to that cornerstone, verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. There is that excitement, and um, it's both a little bit of this anticipation of the fact that this is the Lord's doing, but yet also a reflection of what he has done and what he's been planning for since before the creation of the world. So what does the text say about the cornerstone that is the Lord's doing? Number one thought that comes to mind is man cannot thwart the plan of God. So man cannot stop Jesus from being this cornerstone, this true fulfillment. It is impossible 
for them to thwart the plan of God. The second thing, this was planned before the ages. This is God's plan. It is the Lord's doing. And we're marveling at that. The third thing, the Lord's doing is recognized by the author and is written as praise. This is, this is to be sung. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That next section is marvelous in our eyes. I believe that this is the response of the people who are looking on and seeing this kingly processional. So think through, remember, this is this back and forth going between the people and the leaders as they're praising God's name. You have this, you know, this announcement, maybe even the king or the person playing the king here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone to where the people or the priests reply, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Something that is interesting about, um, about that verse, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Um, I've always read this verse. I don't know about you. I'm sure you guys are much more astute than me. Um, but I, when I read this, when I have read this verse in the past, I was always very much like, all right, I wake up in the morning, no matter if the day is going bad or if the day is going good or it's sunny or it's raining, I bolster myself up by saying, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And really a trust for God is in control. I trust him. Um, and this is the day that he made, as in he created this day, and so I'm going to rejoice in it because he made it. And so um, that's how I've always read it. And, um, you know, however, I was riding around in my truck listening to Psalm 118, and for some reason it hit me, and probably what's hit most of you, maybe, uh, you know, I'm probably dense, but what hit most of you um, is that that's not what this is talking about. In context, this is the day the Lord has made, is the day that Jesus is culminated as the cornerstone. The day that he is recognized that, this, that he is the one that has been waited to come and that he is the one who has died and rose again and proven himself to be the one that was long awaited. That's the day that this is talking about. This is the day the Lord has made. And so our rejoicing, our gladness is because of him and what he has done. And so though the sovereign hand of God is through it, and though, yes, we should we rejoice in the fact that any day we should rejoice in the fact that God made it? Absolutely. But this text, this passage is talking about our rejoicing happens because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's what we base all of it on. This is the day which Jesus is declared to be the cornerstone. And so I would pause to ask a question, how does this change the way we live? In reference to the cross of Christ, we now rejoice. So my question to you is, are you miserable today? If you're miserable, rejoice in Jesus Christ, your cornerstone. If things have been difficult for you and those trials of life have come upon you as they did upon our Savior, as they did upon this king, as they were beaten down and, and uh, in distress, I would challenge you, look upon your cornerstone and rejoice because this is the day that he has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It is marvelous in our eyes. 
Are you excited? Has something come into your life that has brought true enjoyment and excitement? Those moments of life that are truly great are wonderful, but they don't last. You know, we, we are... Um, we get excited about these things that look like they are, they're truly good things, but they're, they're short-lived. Um, marriage ends in death or divorce sometimes. Our lives, you know, these glad things that we see happening in life um, are only by the grace of God. And they're temporal. They're, they're limited only to this life. But yet, the praising of Jesus Christ as a cornerstone lasts for all eternity. That's where we draw our true and lasting joy. As we think even through going through trials and suffering like Chris has talked about, that we are to count it all joy. The only reason we can count it all joy is because of what Jesus has done. It's because he is the true cornerstone that we find our lasting joy in. Let's move to verses 25 and 26. We see this as a prayer and praise to follow the rejoicing over the cornerstone. Um, I find this to be a very interesting one. Verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So this verse, if you've, um, we don't do a lot of special service preaching around here. Um, thanks to uh, somebody who's over there. But uh, now, <laughs> so we don't do a lot of special service. So it's Palm Sunday. You won't necessarily hear um, uh, Luke or Matthew or a Palm Sunday psalm. Um, however, um, this passage is actually hearkening back to that. So let's, let's, actually, turn, let's actually turn over to um, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 and let's, let's uh, read um, 6 through 17 together. And we'll explain how these, these passages tie together. Matthew 21, 6. And the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. And they brought uh, the donkey and the colt and put, them on their, put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road and the others cut branches from the trees and spread uh, them on the road. And the crowds went before him and followed him and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. That Hosanna to the son of David is the, to my knowledge, the one time used in the Old Testament in Psalm 119, or 118, where it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. That save us is Hosanna. And so the people here are crying out. They're looking for Jesus, the son of David, to be their salvation, to be their savior. And we see them quoting other verses in here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So once, I think it's, it's interesting in this text that once again we have these leaders. We saw them rejecting in this other passage, but also in this section. Um, we see them, when they say, Hosanna to the son of David, they are indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? Jesus said it to him, yes, you have never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes. I have prepared you praise. And so we, we return to that passage and think about the fact that 
these people understood the significance of what this is what is happening. Jesus himself coming in is now being proclaimed as the one who was to come. He is the one who uh, who is to come, and then this response is to be, "We bless you from the house of the Lord." And I won't take don't take too much significance in this. However, I find that is the the response of the priests to recognizing Jesus, uh, recognizing the one who was to come. And so um, in, this, in this king sense, the king would have come in. They would have announced, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Maybe the people announced that. There was a response from the temple. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And interestingly enough, we see the religious leaders are actually in turn rejecting him. They're in turn, they're not doing that. We see that um, we see this, uh, they're, they're, they're not doing that. And yet, we still see the fact that Jesus in his, um, <laughs> that the people carry on in this praise of him. And he says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. That he would still fulfill this one who was to come, regardless of whether they came and um, announced his praise as well. So, <clears throat> Verse 27, also, as we, we look into 1827, we see that it says, The Lord is God. He made his light to shine upon us. That, we see John pick up with that, that theme of light and, and, uh, in, over in John 10, or John 12. In the same, actually, interestingly enough, in the same context of the triumphal entry, we see him um, Jesus says in John 12, 35, just following that, that um, explanation of the triumphal entry, we see that he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. So we see this, that the New Testament writers are looking back to this. We see that it's um, an excitement that they find their Savior as the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, the Psalms. And then in magnification of what he has done, we see the proclamation, bind the festal sacrifices with cords up to the horns of the altar. This one is now the sacrifice for sin and death is now the one who is now the sacrifice of praise. And it's a proclamation of them as they, they, um, they see him for who he is. And then once at the end, we then recap. Before we finish, though, um, I would like us to look um, at the previous verses um, in 20 through 21. Actually, 19, as we see in verse 19. Uh, verse 19, we see uh, this king saying, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. So in context of what we've seen following and the connection that this passage, these first few verses have to the fact that um, this cornerstone is the one that though rejected is coming, I really believe that this passage should be read um, as a pro pro processional of the King Jesus coming on the merits of his own righteousness, holding up the cup of salvation, his very own blood, and saying, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through him. 
the one who had received for our sake the discipline of the Lord in the previous verse. And the, dif- the discipline of the Lord has been disciplined severely, but he has not given him over to death. His death, he goes into the grave, raised three days later, and now in triumphal procession, based on the merits of his own blood, open to me the gates of the righteous that, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. And as I read this, my heart resonates to look back to Jesus in this. He is the gate of the Lord. The righteous then enter through him. And that fits with all the theology that the New Testament builds on in in Jesus Christ becoming our righteousness. That he is the narrow way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God besides him. And in all of that, he thanks the Father that he has answered him and become his salvation. And our heart then, as those united with Christ, then resonates in that same vein where we come boldly to the throne of grace. And we say, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And the gatekeeper replies, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous the now made righteous through this cornerstone once rejected, the long-awaited one that was praised, coming in on the donkey's colt, exalted for who he is and what he is about to do and now has done. We come in that backing boldly to the throne and we are viewed as righteous and we are coming through and we now in praise say, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. And all of this is housed, encapsulated in the fact that God, the everlasting Yahweh, has given us something to praise him in his steadfast love, bookending the entirety of the gospel because of the steadfast love of God. And in that, we rejoice. We rejoice in Christ's work on the cross. We rejoice in the fact that though rejected, now he is exalted on high, that he has gained victory over all, and he is now praiseworthy. And his praise then also shines to the Father, and we see his great plan of his steadfast love from generation to generation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today because you are good. We're grateful for your steadfast love that it endures from everlasting to everlasting. We praise you because that is who you are and you are good. Lord Jesus, we pray to the downhearted. We pray for the downhearted that you would give them cause for rejoicing in yourself alone. This world, you have promised trouble, but you alone are the one who brings true and lasting joy. For those who are momentarily set at ease, I pray that we would not be lulled to sleep in rejecting the cornerstone in how we live and go about doing business. I pray that you would help us, that you would protect us from that, from the rejection of him. He is the one that we are to go for, for our life's problems, that we would not seek solace in anyone else in the words of teachers or gurus, but that we would seek it in him and him alone. That if our problems come and arise, that we would turn to him first, rather than to counselors, rather than to people, rather than to those who think they have the answer, but we would seek him first and we would enjoy the joy that comes from recognizing who he is and what he's done. Amen.